I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, October 15th on CBC Radio. Just over a week after Hamas's unprecedented attack in Israel, many are now focused on the Gaza Strip. We'll take you inside Gaza in just a moment and then hear about how Israelis and others in the region are coping. After that, Viet Thanh Nguyen fled Vietnam for the United States with his family after the fall of Saigon. Now, the Pulitzer Prize-winning writer is sharing that story. We'll dig into the questions it poses about war and memory today. Later on, the grief, pain and outrage sparked by the situation in Israel and Gaza transcends borders. We'll hear from two people who work to bring Palestinian and Jewish communities together here in Canada, an effort that's only become more challenging over the past week. And later on, our Sunday documentary wades into the debate about the best way to teach our kids to read. That's all starting right now on the Sunday Magazine podcast. Outside the Gaza Strip today, Israeli troops are massing ahead of an anticipated ground assault. And inside Gaza, airstrikes are continuing. Tens of thousands of people are also on the move. Israelis did deadline for more than half of Gaza's two million residents to flee their homes in the north has passed. And parts of the already densely populated south are becoming even more crowded and overstretched. Isam Hamad is an engineer and regional manager of a medical equipment company. He gave us his perspective from the south of Gaza late yesterday. Gaza is uh, suffering from lack of uh, electricity for about three days or four days. And uh, water also has become very rare. And uh, food also is uh, rarely available because uh, most shops are closed. So on Saturday, when the incident happened, we tried to get some supplies and uh, store it at home. And uh, we are at home since that time. We didn't leave. Just a few minutes ago, there was a big missile explosion just around the area. I don't know where, but in the area. And so on. It will continue. It, uh, it was calm in the day. Now it's the time. They start bombing everywhere until 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, they called us yesterday to move to south of Gaza Strip. But where to? To the streets in the south of Gaza Strip? We can't leave. We simply can't leave. We just pray that uh, bombs do not shell us. Our life now is misery. 
and we live in fear every night and uh, you imagine the children how they feel under bombardment all night it's misery it's death even though we are living it's death there is no place we can go no place we can go some people left their houses they went to schools but uh, in the schools there is no uh, means of, of of life but let me remind everybody who hear me this is not the first time it happened we have seen this in 2008 we have seen this in 2012 we have seen this in 2014 and we also saw that in 2021 and now it's happening again 2023 so they want to say why why the killing happened on saturday Oh, the reason, first of all, why the killing happened in, in all these incidents before? Why the killing is, is going on all the time? Isn't true that the Palestinians have accepted to make peace with the Israelis on the basis of uh, establishing their uh, sovereign state on the land of 1967? Why after 30, 30 years now didn't happen? Their dream didn't happen. They have just been put in despair. They lost their hopes. And now in Gaza, they have been locked for 16 years. 2.2 million people have been put in a pressure cooker and no work, 69% unemployment rate, and people are being losing their life. Some of them we hear that they go try to immigrate to, to, to uh, Europe and they die in the, in the boats uh, at the beaches of, uh, of Greece. But others, what they do? What sort of a life is this? What sort of a life is this? Why is this happening? I, I can't think, think of the uh, next hour, honest to God. An hour from now, I can't think. As simple as that. Because it can, um, our life can turn in a minute to death, and we can uh, become a story. Nobody is trying to aid us and support our rights. Legal rights. Everybody has uh, walked and ran to, to help Ukraine in the war with, with Russia. And I support everybody who has been attacked. But why, why not us? What's the problem with the Palestinians? I want to send the message to everybody who hears us. Look, we are uh, poor people who have been trying years, 75 years, trying to to live exactly like others, have their own dreams and have their own hopes and have their own prosperous place and can run and play and raise our kids in peaceful uh, manner. But unfortunately, we have been denied all of this by the by the world who has been uh, putting uh, pressure on us to accept uh, a reality that does not suit even animals. Look how we get today. Look how we get today. Well, I urge everybody who can hear us and try to do something for our uh, issue, for our for those innocent people who have been, been losing their lives for nothing, for absolutely nothing. Isam Hamad is a Palestinian who currently is in the south of Gaza along with his family. Fear, anger, sadness is something Israelis are continuing to grapple with, and they're deeply worried about what might happen to the dozens of hostages being held by Hamas inside the Gaza Strip. Margaret Evans is a senior international correspondent for CBC News. She joined me from Jerusalem earlier this morning. Hello, Pia. I know it's Sunday afternoon now where you are. Can you just bring us up to date about sort of what the latest in the situation is? Well, uh, as as you said a little bit earlier, that 24-hour deadline um, delivered uh, by Israel to civilians in Gaza 
to move south seems to have been extended. Um, there has been obviously a lot of pressure on Israel, you know, not to move ahead in these circumstances, and that pressure continues from, you know, aid agencies like the United Nations. The Israeli government is saying, make no mistake, this ground invasion is going to happen. Um, we are, you know, as you know, Hamas has, has urged citizens, its civilian citizens in Gaza, uh, to stay. They say they, they should stay in their homes. Israel says they were, that's an attempt to use innocent people as human shields, and, and that's the situation there. There is a lot of concern, growing concern, about what's going to happen in the southern border. If people can get down there, um, it's a very narrow strip, and there are only a couple of roads that lead to the south, so you can imagine kind of the chaotic scenes there. Um, but there is diplomacy going on about what to do to help ease the humanitarian situation there that is only going to get worse. That's a lot of pressure coming on Egypt to open its border crossing at Rafah. Um, there's talk of foreign nationals in Gaza to uh, that trying to allow them to be able to exit at that southern crossing if they can get there. But Egypt has said that that's not going to happen until aid is allowed in. And, of course, Israel is denying that aid from coming in so far. Um, you know, I, I just want to remind you of, of what happened in 2007 along at that southern border, which was just just after Israel and in Egypt imposed their blockade on Gaza. There were then, you know, vast amounts of shortages. People live in great poverty in Gaza. Something like 80% of people there live below the poverty line. Um, and we saw those those walls being pushed down. People actually crashed through the walls for an extended period. And, you know, they went into to Egypt to shop and, and came back. But just a reminder of, of the kind of pressure that is building down there in the south of Gaza along the border with Egypt. Let's talk about um, Israel, Margaret. I know you've um, just arrived in, in Jerusalem. Eight days after these attacks by Hamas militants, of course, there was fear and concern in Israel. But how, how would you, I don't know, sort of summarize, characterize the collective mood in that country? Uh, you know, I don't know whether people have really processed. I, I mean, they're in shock and horrified, but I'm not sure if they've really had the time to process what's happened, the terrible atrocities and the barbarism and the loss of life, but also the, the, the feeling of betrayal that you're hearing from people living in the South, Israelis living in the South, saying that the government failed to protect them. Um, and then, you know, the, the preparation for this ground invasion with people being called up. I, I have one friend who... Um, he has a daughter who lost her best friend in that rave along the border. Um, her, uh, one of her sons has been called up to reserve duty, and another son was due to get married next week. And I give you that just as an example of, you know, things, I don't know if anybody would ever call this part of the world normal, but life does go on as normal, and, and that's just stopped now, and everybody on, on you know, in Gaza, in Israel, in the occupied territories, are, are waiting to see what happens next. It's just really one of deep, deep shock. And I just don't think people have necessarily had time to to process it. And, of course, people are 
you know, have different circumstances. There's tension between Arab or Palestinian Israelis and Jewish Israelis, you know, suspicion between communities. So it's it's very, very tense. Hmm. And with all that, Margaret, there are, according to the Israeli military, 126 Israelis being held by Hamas inside Gaza. Their loved ones um, have been speaking out over the last number of days. Obviously, they and all Israelis are concerned about the fate of them. Do we know any more about the whereabouts or conditions of the hostages and what their families have been saying? Um, not really about the whereabouts or conditions. Um, the families obviously are going through a great deal of anguish. And they um, they are, though, very actively trying to speak to the media. They're trying to remind people of the humanity of, of the loved ones that are are being held hostage, they're telling their stories, um, and very, very worried about what the impact of of a heavy ground invasion might be if they are being held hostage. Um, There was some uh, consternation amongst the families over comments made by um, Bezalel Smotrich, who's who's a cabinet minister, a hard right uh, cabinet minister in the in the, the current government who, who said, you know, is urging Israel to hit Hamas so hard and, 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 and was implying that, you know, you, you can't really worry about the captive, captives. They can't be taken into significant consideration because it's a no-win situation. Of course, that caused a, a great deal of, of anger. You have people who, a lot, you know, we, we've heard stories of a lot of people living along that, um, that southern uh, border with uh, Gaza, were people who really promoted, they wanted, you know, hands across the border, they promoted peace with the Palestinians. And and one uh, woman, a woman named Netta Hyman, uh, her mother, Bita, who was in her 80s, was taken. And she's written an editorial for one of the newspapers saying, you know, don't destroy the Gaza Strip, not just because she's worried about her mother, but because she says in the long run, it won't actually bring anything but another you know, more ferocious round of violence. Margaret, you were our Middle East correspondent for for many years. You have covered many, many conflicts, wars between Israel and Hamas. What are you thinking about this morning as you watch this all unfold and cover it? Um, Well, obviously, I'm thinking about the people, and I'm trying to remind myself in all those years how many amazing, extraordinary people did Palestinians and Israelis did, um, you know, reach across the border, try to think of a way to come out of conflict because it feels so dark right now. Um, and there's something so familiar about this sort of pattern. We, as journalists, we try not to use cycle of violence because it's a cliche, but that's what this feels right like right now, it's very familiar, but it's also unprecedented. It's sort of a reminder not to just assume that it's going to be like it was before. But I guess the thing that I wonder is whether what's happening now will actually bring fresh minds to trying to resolve this problem. Because, you know, the two-state solution that uh, countries like our own have paid lip service to um, and funded for years is just sitting gathering dust in the corner. So it's kind of an indictment of the international community for 
you know, not continuing to pressure or to, to think about a way out of it. And I don't know whether this is going to bring sort of that fresh look to an age-old problem or not. I just don't know because despair lives on both sides. It lives all around here. And of course, despair, you know, turns into, it becomes sort of the foot soldier of, of militancy and anger and violence. Margaret, thank you for um, joining me this morning and appreciate all your good work. Do take care. Thanks, Pia. Margaret Evans is the senior international correspondent for CBC News. She joined me from Jerusalem earlier this morning. For more on this, I'm joined once again by Greg Karlstrom. Greg's a Middle East correspondent for The Economist based in Dubai. I spoke with him earlier this morning. Thanks for having me. I know you've been covering the story and the regional impacts um, for the past eight days as well. You know what's going on in Gaza. You've been hearing about it. What is your assessment of the situation there this morning? It is just a, a humanitarian catastrophe already and, and seems to be getting worse by the day. You've had, uh, as you heard before, this migration of people who have been told by the Israeli army uh, that they need to move south of Wadi Gaza, which is a, a riverbed that more or less bisects the territory. And so a million people have been told to move south. We don't know exactly how many people have moved, but I mean, I've, I've heard plenty of stories of people who did make that journey and said that there were thousands of others doing that. And they're, they're reaching to a place in southern Gaza uh, that is simply not equipped to handle them. There is not enough shelter. There aren't enough uh, homes to put all of these people in. Uh, people have tried to shelter in schools and in hospitals. I mean, we spoke to one doctor yesterday who said the corridors are full, the car park is full at his hospital. You can't even walk between the different buildings at this hospital because there are so many displaced people. And then on top of that, it's not just where people are going to sleep, but it's where they're going to find food, where they're going to find water. Uh, the water supply from Israel has been cut off. The desalination plants in Gaza don't have electricity to run, so there's no water coming out of the taps. People are drinking dirty water out of wells. There are concerns about cholera and typhus and other diseases perhaps starting to spread. Uh, food is running short. Mm. Uh, and this is before what seems like a, a large Israeli ground invasion. Yeah, and as you say, amidst all that, they're waiting for um, Israel's military to, to move in, it says, by land, air, and sea. We saw Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu meeting with Israeli troops near the border with Gaza yesterday. Um, what do we know about when this might be coming? What this next stage may look like? The, the Prime Minister and the Israeli military have given very broad statements, but do we have a better sense of what this might look like? Because this will be urban warfare. They haven't put a time frame on it in public statements and, and in private statements. They're not very specific. I mean, what we've heard from Israeli sources is that this probably will begin in the next day or two. The army gave this order. They told people you have 24 hours to leave. They expected it would actually take a bit longer for people to leave northern Gaza. But I would think within the next day or two, uh, they are going to begin this, this ground operation. It may be smaller than people thought it was going to be a week ago when we heard these reports of 300,000 Israeli troops being mobilized. Uh, it sort of sounded like there was going to be all at once a, a massive ground invasion of Gaza. It may not happen quite that way. It may be a, a smaller force starting in, in sort of a limited area and then expanding out from there. 
uh, almost uh, doing this ground offensive in stages rather than all at once. And uh, the goal of it, from what we've heard from the Israeli army, is to remove Hamas from power. But exactly what that is going to look like on the ground, we're, we're not sure yet. There are tensions um, all around the region. And I, I, I do want to ask you about the West Bank. Um, there have been a number of Palestinians killed in, in the past week. Tensions are, are very high there as well. Right. And tensions have been high there even before uh, the events of the past week. This has been the deadliest year on record for Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. Uh, there have been real concerns there about the policies of this right-wing government that has been in power for, uh, for almost a year in Israel, uh, which has tried to expand Israeli settlements and, and take various other measures that have brought tensions to a boil. In the past week, uh, we've heard of at least 50 Palestinians who have been killed uh, in clashes with the Israeli army or killed by Israeli settlers in the West Bank. And I think sort of two concerns right now. One is that uh, Hamas, which does have some popular support in the West Bank, might try to almost open another front against Israel there by carrying out attacks uh, in, in the occupied West Bank. The other is that Israeli settlers uh, are going to try and raise tensions as well. And we've seen reports of settlers killing Palestinians, uh, burning olive groves, uh, attacking people's villages. These sorts of things, unfortunately, happen all the time in the West Bank. But coming against the backdrop of what's happening right now, uh, there's just a real concern that that things are going to boil over there. Last weekend, when I was talking with you, you were you know laying out sort of the regional scenes and scenarios. Um, a lot can change in a week. Um, so yesterday, Iran's foreign minister called on Israel to stop its attacks on Gaza, warning that the war might expand to other parts of the Middle East if Hezbollah, which is based in Lebanon, backed by Iran, jo joins the battle, and, and that it is Israel, Israel, Israel would suffer a, quote, huge earthquake. How likely, and I know there's been um, an exchange of, of gunfire in the north of Israel into southern Lebanon, how likely do you think it is that we could see Hezbollah take a more active role in this conflict at this point? It's the question everyone in the Middle East has been talking about for the past week, and I can't give you a definitive answer. The Iranians do seem to be laying out a red line here, trying to tell the Israelis if there is a large ground offensive, we are going to widen this war. What we've seen so far from Hezbollah in Lebanon, there have been these exchanges of fire that uh, Hezbollah has killed a number of Israelis with missiles filed across the border. Uh, there were uh, journalists who were killed and injured in Israeli shelling in Lebanon the other day. Uh, but all of this from the Lebanese side, from Hezbollah, seems calibrated to show support for the Palestinians, but not risk a, a bigger war. These are very calculated sorts of escalations. All of that could change when the ground offensive begins. The Iranians are certainly signaling that it will. On the other hand, you can say Hezbollah would face very unpredictable political consequences in Lebanon if it was seen as dragging the country into a war. And uh, would the Iranians want to risk uh, not only that group losing support in Lebanon, but also uh, losing some of the military arsenal that it has built up uh, over the past two decades. So there's reason to think that the Iranians are serious about this threat. There's also reason to wonder if they will follow through on it. And, and really, no one knows at this point. Of course, over the past few days, the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, has been like racing from country to country in the region, going back to Israel tomorrow. He was in uh, the UAE, where you are yesterday. There's been many s stops for him. What clout does the U.S. have in the region right now? That's a very good question. I think perhaps not as much as uh, everyone 
thinks it will. Um, he's been pushing different messages on different stops uh, throughout this trip. When he was in Israel, we saw very public support for the Israeli government, but in private, the message was a bit tougher. Uh, the message has been a bit tougher from the Americans, uh, trying to first put some limits on the Israeli ground offensive and, and particularly push Israel to allow aid in to alleviate the, the crisis, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, uh, and also asking the Israelis, how do you see this ending? What is the strategy for if you go in there and try to remove Hamas? How is that going to end? Uh, he will be in Egypt today meeting with Egyptian officials. A lot of that will be aimed at uh, the humanitarian conditions again in Gaza, uh, trying to reach an agreement first for aid to enter from Egypt into Gaza, and then second, uh, trying to push the Egyptians to allow Palestinians out of Gaza into Egypt uh, to, to seek safety from the fighting. Uh, and that latter thing is something that the Egyptian government really does not want to do. Uh, then you've had various stops in the Gulf where he was in uh, Qatar yesterday, for example, uh, talking with the government there, which has uh, good relations with Hamas. Uh, and they were talking about the possibility of a prisoner swap to free these hostages. So America is trying to work on all of these different issues at the moment, but uh, the Israelis are pushing ahead with the ground offensive, at least for now. I don't think restraint, the idea of restraint is going to resonate with them. Egypt, again, does not want to let Palestinian refugees leave Gaza into Egypt. Uh, the Gulf states have put out some very mixed messages on this, so I'm not sure how productive all of this American diplomacy has been so far. So as you sit and cover this story, as you've been doing for a number of months, but really in the last week in this particular context, Greg, unprecedented, unknown, all these words that we're throwing around about we don't know what's coming next, but what are you watching for? Like, What, do you, what are you sort of looking to? Well, I think on the Israeli front or the Israeli-Gaza uh, front, I mean, I think a lot more will become clear in the next couple of days when we see uh, how this Israeli ground offensive proceeds. Is it, uh, again, as we were saying before, this sort of huge operation where they go in full bore and, and try to seize control of all of Gaza, or is it a more limited, they're, they're going in to try to find and decapitate Hamas, if you will? I think that will tell us something about whether their long-term plan uh, is to do a ground offensive and then leave, or to do a ground offensive and then stay and, and almost reoccupy the territory the way that it was occupied before 2005. Uh, on the regional context, I think uh, same thing, a lot more will be clear within the next few days. I've been speaking to a few analysts in Israel who have said, if the ground offensive proceeds, not all at once, but in stages, and, and along with that, there's some progress on uh, humanitarian relief for Palestinians in Gaza and things like that, uh, it might reduce the chances of this becoming a regional war if it mm -hmm. seems like it's it's not a complete Israeli invasion of the territory. Uh, so we've almost been in this this waiting this waiting mode for the past few days as we we wait to see how that unfolds, and uh, I think it'll it'll be a few more days before anything is clear. Greg Karlstrom, as always, appreciate your analysis and your time uh, for us. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Greg Karlstrom is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist. He's based in Dubai. I spoke with him earlier this morning. And later in our second hour, we will bring this story home. I'll be speaking with two people in Canada who've long worked to build unity among Jewish and Palestinian communities here about how the situation in Israel and Gaza is challenging those efforts. Meantime, you can find all the latest news um, on what's going on at cbcnews.ca and on the CBC News app. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Viet Thanh Nguyen has spent his lifetime thinking about war 
As a child, he fled with his family from Vietnam to the U.S. after the fall of Saigon. He's now a celebrated author and self-described scholar of memory. Viet's debut novel explored the aftermath of the Vietnam War through the eyes of a spy. It's called The Sympathizer, and it won the prestigious Pulitzer Prize in 2016. And though he was first well-known as a novelist, Viet's now regarded as a provocative public thinker who guides his readers to probe deeper into the nuances that get lost in conflict, a theme that is very resonant in this moment. Viet's new memoir weaves together his views on contemporary life with his family's origin story as refugee. And I spoke with him about it a couple of weeks ago before the current conflict between Israel and Hamas. The title of your memoir is A Man of Two Faces, which is how the narrator of your novel, The Sympathizer, described himself. But in this case, Viet, A Man of Two Faces is how you describe yourself. What do you mean by that? How are you a man of two faces? I came to the United States as a refugee in 1975 from Vietnam. And I was, on the one hand, raised as a Vietnamese person in a 100% Vietnamese household, as my parents like to tell me. But I was also raised as an American through no choice of their own, simply because I was going to American schools and exposed to American popular culture. And so I felt myself to be also an American. Therefore, in my parents' very Vietnamese household, I was uh, an American spying on these strange Vietnamese people and their customs. And outside in the rest of the American world, I was a Vietnamese people spying on Americans and their strange customs. So I, from, you know, from a very young age, I felt this duality of, of having two faces and two perspectives. And that is not uncommon, I think, among a lot of immigrants or refugees or so-called minorities of various kinds. And I've carried that with me into my adulthood and my work. And I found my life not so very interesting until I wrote this memoir, so I wrote a novel instead, where I created a man of two faces with much more dramatic possibilities. Yeah, I like that um, idea of spy. I'm a kid of Indian immigrants, and it is always sort of, especially as a kid, navigating, curating, figuring out, but really spying, finding out what, what makes ticks and communities and cultures work and why they are the way they are. Yeah, I think that's not uncommon. And and one other aspect of this is that being a spy is not an uncomplicated thing. Uh, it requires loyalty, but it also requires betrayal. Who, who are you loyal to? Who are you betraying? You're there, or at least I'm there, watching these secrets and intimacies unfold. Um, and I, I look at, you know, both what Americans do and Vietnamese do with love and also skepticism at the same time. It's not always a, a comfortable position to be in because I think for a lot of people, they don't want to be spies. They want to be 100% on one side or the other. And the duality, um, or even the multiplicity of, of possible possibilities, uh, is unsettling for a lot of people. But for a writer, at least, it's very good to be, capable of seeing things from at least two sides, perhaps more. Uh, and then you're faced as a writer with the challenge of whether or not you're going to betray these intimacies and these customs and these secret knowledges that other people don't know about. There's a story you tell in the book um, about your dad that I want you to tell us about how your dad found out about your Pulitzer Prize win. Honestly, I never expected to win the Pulitzer. I didn't even know what day the Pulitzer announcement was coming. I was in a hotel room in Cambridge, Massachusetts, 
getting ready to do a, a book event when uh, Twitter started to inform me that, oh, you found a Pulitzer Prize. And I was like, oh, well, that's nice. Um, so when, <laughs> you know, it was obviously very, very shocking. Um, I went and did the event and moved on with my life. I had another book event the next day. And literally, I think the only person I called was my wife. When I found out about the news, it did not occur to me literally to uh, talk to my parents about it. Um, I think partly well, mostly because why brag to these people? I mean, my parents that are, in my mind, hero- heroic. You know, they, they live very ordinary lives, but they also sacrificed tremendously and saw all kinds of historical world-shaking things happen in their life uh, in Vietnam. And they had done so much for me, and, and, and they were so modest about what they had done. I felt there was no need for me to brag to my own parents about about mm-hmm. this, especially when they didn't read my books. Um <laughs> Uh, you know, they'd sacrificed so much. I didn't want to torment them by actually making them read my books. <laughs> so the next day I was in another city uh, and for another book event. And then the phone rings, my father's calling me, uh, you know, his, he's, he's, he says, Oh, the villagers from Vietnam called and his voice is shaking with happiness. You won the Pulitzer prize. Oh, yeah. And I was like, wow. I finally made my father proud. And all it took was winning uh, the Pulitzer prize. <laughs> This is the story of um, refugees and, and that 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 kid and parent relationship. As you say, they give up so much to give their kids, you know, the better life. And just for for people who may not be familiar with your family's story, you left in seventy five, nineteen seventy five, after the fall of Saigon. So you're four years old when you arrive in the United States, and you and your family come as refugees. And in your book, you talk about how your mom told you stories of her childhood, that they would kind of be tidbits that kind of slipped out about her past. They were dark. You call them occasional stories that would leak out. Why do you think she shared them in that way, in those sort of dribs and drabs? And what impact now as an adult, when you look back on it, do you think that had on you? You know, we we had a shared language in Vietnamese, uh, but I came when I was four and I was fluent in Vietnamese at four years of age. And I pretty much stayed that way for for quite a while. Uh, So I think it was very even if even if my mom and dad wanted to tell me longer stories about their childhood and so on um, and their life in Vietnam, it would have been very difficult for me to comprehend and so I think that there was that barrier. And then there was also probably just a reluctance to talk about the past because so much of their past uh, was traumatic. It had to be given what they experienced. You know, my, they were born in the 1930s, uh, in Northern Vietnam. They, they witnessed a famine that killed more than a million people. They were refugees in 54 and 75. They saw war, all these, all these terrible things. Uh, do you really want to talk about that to your mm. five or 10 year old child? Um, what would that? kids say in, in response. Uh, but I think that I, I just think that those those things, those that history left left, of course, a deep imprint on my mother, for example. And uh you, you know, traumatized her. I, I just don't, don't know of a better word. Uh so I was plucking hairs from from her head one day when I was probably 10 or 11 and plucking gray hairs and and she just started recounting this episode of how when she was a little girl younger than I was probably at the time, uh, she saw that famine in her northern village and she saw a dead child on his uh, doorstep. I didn't say anything back. <laughs> you know, I was mm-hmm. like, I don't know what to make out of this story. And I didn't give her a hug. I, we didn't hug in our family. Um, I didn't give her any solace. And But why did she tell that story? I I, I think it was literally unforgettable for her. And, and maybe it just slipped out um, as memory. You know, part of the problem of memory is sometimes we seek out memories and other times, memories seek out us. And I think that memory sought her out at that moment. And she just had to say something about it. 
Hmm. That concept of, of war memories is one you've explored deeply throughout your career. You've written a lot about a quote-unquote just or ethical remembrance of conflict. What is the relationship between memory and justice as you see it? Well, I think, of course, uh, there's this idea that we should do justice to memory, to the way that things happened, whether those things happen within our family or community or or nation. So the notion of memory and justice is deeply intertwined. I think we're all invested in this idea that if something has happened, we should properly recall it. But of course, it's a huge debate about what is the proper recall. Uh, we can talk about a fact, a war, for example, or a battle or an argument. That fact happened, but... How do we do it justice? How do we account for the different perspectives and conflicting sides? That's the true work of the justice uh, involved in memory. And that's why it, the, the debate over, over memory is so volatile in so many uh, different cases. And there's endless numbers of examples that we can bring up when it comes to war and memory for uh, the United States or Canada or, or Vietnam and so on. And uh, besides the inherent imperative to remember justly. There's also the fact that how we remember the past is going to determine what we do in the present and the future. And so when it comes to war and memory, so many of the uh, efforts to memorialize war or soldiers or whatever um, are not just about the past. They're very much about justifying what it is that our country, our culture, our side is doing in the present. And so if we look at just this specific example of the American war in Vietnam, uh, the United States has been fighting this war in memory ever since the war ended in different ways. And one of the, it's, the reason it does so is to resolve internal American conflicts, but also to justify the wars that the United States has waged and, and is waging ever since the end of uh, the war in Vietnam. So let me ask you about two very, one ongoing and one recently, um, quote unquote, ended war. Because as you say, how we remember stories, how we tell stories, both past and in the present, is critically important. So as you watch the war in Ukraine unfold, how have you been thinking about the narratives that are unfolding? I think that the narratives unfolding, at least in the United States and in dominant culture in the United States, is very much a Cold War narrative. It's almost a complete replay of the Cold War, which is a binary narrative. There's good, there's bad, uh, there's good and evil, and we, the Americans and the Western Europeans, are on the side of good. Um, the Russians or the Soviets of the past or the Chinese or the North Koreans are on the side of evil. And there's a country caught in the middle. In this case, it's Ukraine. So however one feels about Ukraine and the conflict, and I personally think it is wrong for any country to invade another country. So I do think Russia is in the wrong to invade Ukraine. The problem with the Cold War narrative is that it forces us to choose sides. So now the Russians become the evil ones and the Ukraine uh, Ukrainians become the good guys. Uh, which vastly, I think, oversimplifies the fact that this particular war takes place in the context of larger geopolitical conflicts and strategies and campaigns that all these different countries are waging. Uh, and so the, the problem uh, here is that in the United States, when Americans say, well, yes, the Russians are evil, they should never invade another country, how dare they kill civilians, how dare they shoot up, uh, drop bombs on markets and, and things like that. The problem is that it prevents Americans from thinking about the fact that we do this every day. <laughs> it's like, we just did this uh, in Afghanistan. And, and we, we take it as our God-given right to shoot drone missiles into any country we want whenever we want to. Uh, we would never, as Americans, tolerate that happening to us. But somehow, it's okay for us to do it to other countries. And then we, we forget about those things 
precisely by creating Cold War narratives, casting other countries, in this case, Russia, as the true villains. Hmm. I'm glad you brought up um, Afghanistan, a long war, and the U.S. troops pulled out just a little over two years ago. And I think some, uh, uh, I don't want to say story, but stories and a country that has really unfortunately fallen off the radar in terms of what's happening and how much we talk about it and the responsibility of all kinds of people and countries. So when you say, look, when I look at Ukraine, we did this in Afghanistan, what other stories do you think have been missing from the way we are talking and understanding what happened in that war? You know, Americans become interested in other countries, uh, and this is not atypical. Uh, they become interested in other countries to the extent that those other countries reflect their own interests. And so I think for, you know, Americans, when we, whether it's Afghanistan or Vietnam or, or Ukraine, it's, it's very much casting people, the inhabitants and the participants of that war in, in conflict, in narratives of conflict that are oriented around American interests. And so I think that the American narrative around Afghanistan was always, uh, making Afghanistan Afghans subordinate to the larger American narrative of the American, uh, number one, right to intervene anywhere, but also this idea that when America intervenes, it's doing so both for the good of Americans, but also for the good of the people um, in question. And so when we do get Afghan narratives, it's oftentimes a subtext that the Afghans that we're interested in are, are somehow serving American interests in some way. Their plights, their, their, their needs, their tragedies, as awful as those might be, still reflect positively because Americans are there to defend or help or or rescue Afghans. That that I think was how the the very end of the war, the American part of the war in Afghanistan unfolded at the at the airport in Kabul. Okay. If you remember, um, Americans came in and and uh, sent troops in and and of course lost a dozen or thirteen Marines at a at a at a suicide bombing. That narrative very much fits the narrative of American sacrifice and American rescue of people. That's what Americans would choose to remember. You know, the, the, the plight of all those people at the airport and the, and the dead Marines, all very important. But I also choose to remember that one of the last things that the United States did um, during the fall of Kabul was to fire a drone missile into a car uh, at a garage, at a home garage, that killed the driver and, and nine of his children and relatives. And it was because the United States thought that this uh, driver was driving a, a, a car bomb when, in fact, he worked for an American NGO. Um, and the joint uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, it's a righteous strike. He said that before the United States discovered who the driver really was. But, you know, we shed no tears as a country over that, uh, that, that driver and his family. But we are expected to shed tears over the Ukrainians that the Russians are killing. So one of the conversations that you have in your country, and maybe arguably so, we have more in, in, in my country, in Canada, is um, refugees out of wars. So if we look at Afghanistan, Canada is still shy of reaching the target that the federal government set out of bringing 40,000 Afghan refugees in. And we've brought in about 166,000 Ukrainians since that war has, has started. And that contrast hasn't been lost on some Canadians. But beyond comparing numbers um, via, you know, the other th conversation that we're having in this country is about welcoming immigrants. Again, our federal government has goals to welcome half a million immigrants by 2025. And there's polling out there that more than half of Canadians are not in favor of us bringing in this many immigrants. They want fewer people because of concerns over our housing, the cost of living. Um, 
how do we have these conversations about migrants, immigrants, refugees in a productive way in 2023? There are ways to do that productive conversation. Uh, We can talk about everything from the morality uh, uh, of welcoming immigrants and uh, refugees. But I I think that the the argument about morality uh, and ethics and the ethical need to welcome immigrants and refugees falls increasingly on on deaf ears because people are attuned, many people are attuned more to the the demands of their pocketbook, like uh, they're not enough jobs or they're not enough resources and so on. And so I think the, the, the narrative also has to be about this issue of the host society and its relationship to its own resources, its own wealth. That's a difficult conversation to have, this idea that there should be enough places at the table, there should be enough food and jobs and so on, not just for uh, the the people who are coming, but the, the people who are already here. And because I know less about Canada, but in the United States, you know, there there is this idea that we are living in a time of economic scarcity, we can't share we should change that narrative. We are not living in a time of economic scarcity. We're living in a time in which certain uh, people and groups are holding on to uh, more of the resources than others. That should be the real narrative um, and instead of blaming immigrants and refugees. It's a difficult narrative to to undertake because, in fact, the idea of blaming outsiders and others has been <laughs> with uh, society since probably forever, um, but we certainly see it evident in Canadian and American society. Uh, but for those of us who think that it is a good idea to welcome immigrants and refugees, I think that the, these these are two of the three things we we have to emphasize: morality and ethics on the one hand, um, the expanding of the of the economic pie on on the other, and then finally this idea that without immigrants and refugees, without newcomers, countries like Canada and the United States are going to face a real shortage of people able and willing to do many different kinds of jobs in the very near future. And mm-hmm. we can we, we can look at countries like Japan or China that are graying and so on uh, to look at places where that, 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 that are already going through these kinds of problems and partly because they have an ambivalent relationship to outsiders. I want to come back to you, and I know all of this is, is you as a writer, but, but the actual writing process. There's a section in your book where you write about being a so-called minority writer in the North American literary landscape and how that often comes with this expectations from others to to talk about so-called sob stories and, and trauma. Some writers describe that as a burden, but you see it as a currency. Well, it is a burden um, that writers of the so-called majority don't have, because if you're of the so-called majority, you can safely assume that your audience shares a similar context. So you don't have to explain things or translate things and so on. And writers of so-called minority backgrounds may feel quite tempted because they don't have the power to, to publish themselves and they don't share a common culture necessarily with the, the power brokers of the publishing world. These writers may feel, uh, this, this burden to tell their entire community stories, which is impossible. And they may feel the burden of having to uh, translate or explain things, which, you know, they should never do, in my opinion. Uh, but I also think of it as a currency because if these writers do what it is that the dominant culture expects of them, they might very well be rewarded for that. Um, increased book sales, increased recognition, this kind of thing. So there's a way in which the so-called minority does benefit from that experience by fetishizing it. That is a deep danger that I've, I've certainly tried to warn against, uh, often. And it's attached to this idea that it's, it's not as if the United States doesn't want immigrants and refugees and minorities to talk about their 
pain and their problems. In fact, I think the publishing industry, which is staffed mostly by liberals, incites that trauma. They want to, they audience the audience wants to hear the traumatic stories. And so for immigrants and refugees to the United States, maybe to Canada, there's obviously the expectation that, well, yes, you experienced racism. We know that's a part of American society, for example. But the important thing is that you overcame it because you are a writer. As much as they suffered, look at you. You got a voice. You have a book. You have a story. You have a publishing deal, all that kind of stuff. But there's a limit. And for me, the limit in the United States context is that the American, the narrative of the American dream is so strong that it's very difficult to overcome. Now, at the level of literature, you're not simply supposed to wave the flag and say, yay to the American dream. That's a little uncouth. But the narrative of the American dream should be subtle. You should still affirm that the United States is, for all of its complications and racism and other problems, it's still the greatest country on earth. That's the the underlying American dream narrative that is so hard for so many uh, writers to overcome. You've said before, quote, I don't believe in being a voice for the voiceless, which I think sometimes is also a pressure put upon uh, writers like like yourself. Why not? It's such a temptation to be a voice for the voiceless uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, number one, because who wouldn't want the voiceless to be spoken for? And number two, why shouldn't it be me? If it has to be anybody, it should be me. <laughs> I'm using me figuratively. But I've always felt that to be deeply problematic. Um, and I always quote the writer, Erendati uh, Roy, who summarized it very simply. You know, She said, there's really no such thing as the voiceless. They're only the deliberately silenced or the preferably unheard. And she's absolutely right. I mean, I grew up in this Vietnamese refugee community. There was, they were, we were loud. You know, there's always <laughs> stories going on. And we were, and Vietnamese people were publishing their own books and their own newspapers and doing their own shows in Vietnamese. We were not voiceless. We were just unheard or we were silenced. And so when someone is invited or anointed to be a voice for the voiceless by the majority or the dominant society, what's really happening is the elevation of one voice and one representative and the silencing uh, of the entire community. Because if you're part of the dominant society, you literally have thousands of writers and storytellers talking about your shared experience. But somehow the, the, the so-called minority community only gets the one hmm. voice for the voiceless. Uh, that is a trick <laughs> that's being offered uh, at the burden and the currency of otherness that's being offered to that community to, to have the one spokesperson when we know that any community has thousands of stories. And so I've always rejected that label. I've always felt that it was more important to, to emphasize what Arundhati Roy said. And my addendum to that is that we shouldn't elevate voices for the voiceless. Uh, that just keeps people voiceless. What we should be doing is abolishing the conditions of voicelessness. But that's much harder, you know, to abolish those conditions. It involves poverty and structural racism and incarceration and things like this. Uh, and so we can't separate the question of voice from the question of deep inequality throughout our societies. It's been a pleasure listening to you. Um, and I thank you for this in your book. It speaks to so many of the big issues that um, probably we don't spend enough time thinking or talking about. Thanks a lot, Viet. Pia, it's been a delight talking to you. Viet Thanh Nguyen's new book is called A Man of Two Faces, A Memoir, A History, A Memorial. And I spoke with him a couple of weeks ago before the current conflict between Israel and Hamas. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and you're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast.
Okay, don't skip ahead. I'm going to talk to you about climate change. And I know it can get depressing or infuriating, but our show takes a different approach. It's Laura Lynch, and I'm the host of What on Earth? And we're all about solutions and hope. And I promise, no matter how overwhelming climate change might feel, we're with you on the journey to fix this mess. So listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Returning to the week's events in Israel and the Palestinian territories, the situation has sparked incredible levels of grief, pain and outrage, deepening long-simmering divides in the region and challenging the efforts at solidarity that many people on both sides of this conflict have been striving for and working hard towards for years. These kinds of efforts have been going on here in Canada as well. Raja Khoury is the founding president of the Canadian Arab Institute, a former commissioner with the Ontario Human Rights Commission and co-founder of the Canadian Arab Jewish Leadership Dialogue Group, and Jeffrey Wilkinson holds a doctorate in education from the University of Toronto. He works with Jewish communities on issues of Jewish-Palestinian dialogue. Together, they've been working for years to bridge divisions between Palestinian and Jewish communities here in Canada. And just a couple of weeks ago, the pair published a book about their efforts. It is called The Wall Between, What Jews and Palestinians Don't Want to Know About Each Other. I spoke with Raja and Jeff earlier this morning. Morning, Thank you very much. Good morning. It's been a week. Um, first off, and let me begin with you, Raja. How, how are you holding up? It's been a very tough uh, week, Pia. Very tough uh, for two reasons. One is, of course, the events uh, themselves, and two, you know, the it's it's presented a a challenge to our message. Uh, the timing, I mean, couldn't have been more challenging because uh while we are talking about the need to start understanding each other and each other's narrative and what puts it there uh what makes it up we have events that uh, are the exact opposite of that kind of outreach and understanding and it's you know violence and killing and uh, suffering, and it doesn't really put people in the right mood for that kind of conversation. Mm. Jeff, how have you been doing? Well, you know, as Raja said, it's been a challenging week. Um, in the midst of this, we've been on a book tour, um, excuse me, in the U.S. We have spoken with Palestinian students who statements of condemning all violence are seen as dismissive of their cause. And you, me, in my community, uh, if I say all the things we say after we utterly condemn the horrific events of the, the actions of Hamas, the and is seen as dismissive, as limiting the trauma of my people. Um, so we're really, we're stuck in this vortex that we've been in that now has been exacerbated by barbs of trauma, grief, loss, um, where we may descend deeper and deeper into our tribal silos and resist each other even more, which is the opposite of what we need to do. I'm going to pick up uh, with you, Jeff, in just a second about what you just said there about those sort of one-liners that people have been saying. But before I get to that, help people out. Um, you two are friends. You've worked together. There's mutual respect between the two of you. However, this conflict has impacted everyone, including each of you. So what was the first conversation you two had with each other after you heard the news? What did you say to one another? 
Interesting. Um, you know, we we both were trying to understand what's going on with with respect to the work we were right in the middle of. <laughs> and basically, we were trying to help each other, uh, you know, get a grip on what is it actually that's happening and more importantly how people were reacting to it i mean on october 1st we had a a beautiful reception here in toronto where we had jews zionists palestinians arabs muslims christians people from all walks coming together over a hundred of them to celebrate our book uh, celebrate its message uh, you know express support for it uh, people left in a very good mood. We had poetry and music, and uh, and then six days later, everything was turned on its head. And the struggle for us was, you know, how do we hold on to this message during you know times like these? And and we're still we're still struggling with that. You know, I've, I've been in Canada 35 years uh, and involved in communities and, and equity and human rights work and all that. I have never seen such polarization hmm. between Palestinians and Jews here before. Hmm. And so, Raja, when someone says to you, um, I stand with Israel, and I ask you that as a Palestinian Canadian, Mm. How, how does that sit with you? Because we've heard a lot of, you know, people taking sides and being very dogmatic about where, where they stand. Mm. And I'm just wondering what the response to that is, how you hear that, what you say to someone when they say that. Well, you know, when it's unequivocal, I stand with Israel no matter what. That's, that's not the kind of uh, message and language that we like to use because... Uh, that's an absolutist approach, and Israel will make mistakes. Israel has been oppressing Palestinians for decades under occupation and under siege in Gaza. There are many things that Israel is doing that I, you know, I, I strongly object to. So, if someone says, uh, "I'm with Israel no matter what," that makes it really difficult to go to the next step that is needed in in cases of mutual understanding, and which is, you know, do, do you want to hear my narrative? You know, do you want to do you want to explain to me why you're supporting Israel, no matter what? And and you know, in in that kind of situation, it's hard to get that kind of exchange of information and ideas that will be helpful because it's about I support Israel no matter what and you know it's hard to go beyond that mm -hmm. and Jeff what about for you this past week um as a Jew when you hear or see slogans like uh, free Palestine or Palestine will be free how do you sort of approach that how do you think about it how do you meditate on it what do you do with that sure sure I draw on my long conversations with Raja and other Palestinians. I see Free Palestine as a liberation movement to end oppression, to have equal rights for all citizens, for all people up between the river and the sea. I, I have come not to see it as the expulsion of my people or as a threat to us. Though I'm sure there are some who see it that way, I, I don't see it that way. Um, my experience this week, as Raja was saying, I think that we, you know, I've 
I deal in the area of trauma and all the people I spoke with this week was to be a vehicle to, you know, as a salve to some of the pain and suffering, no matter what uh, political position they took. Yet we have been suffering and we have said to each other repeatedly this week, I'm not okay. Hmm. And it's, it's okay to not be okay. Um, I think my main message to the Jewish community is that our responsibility is not is is primarily to work to create the situation in our conversation on the ground in our body politic that supports nonviolent resistance to oppression that really pushes back on the idea that any form of 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 stand against Israel is somehow anti-Semitic that that has created this sort of animosity and ripeness in the Palestinian community to feel very, very upset because even well-meaning, uh, non-violent approaches of resistance have been condemned by most in my community. And I think that's harming our way forward. And Raja, what are you saying to people within the Palestinian diaspora? Jeff was just talking about sort of when he talks within to members of his own community. I'm wondering what you're saying to them this past week. Well, I mean, the, the, there isn't you know, one Palestinian position, obviously, but a dominant uh, reaction to recent events has been, um, you know, the, the violence uh, of the oppressed is not the same as the violence of the oppressor. And what people mean by that is, you know, Palestinians are living daily violent lives because of the occupation and the oppression of the occupation and in Gaza because of the siege and the all kinds of, you know, essentials of life that become very rare and not available to them. Uh, they, you know, this has been happening for a long time. And uh, to some Palestinians, at least, after being abused every day, every day, every day, then, you know, punching back uh, once or twice somehow, you know, makes them the bad guys. And and even though people may not necessarily be supportive of Hamas and its methods, they they need to know that there is a resistance movement that is at least trying to defend them and trying to push back on... Uh, on violence perpetrated against them. And unfortunately, the only force available right now to them is Hamas, because the Palestinian Authority is in agreement with Israel on security and so on. Can I just hop in here, Jeff, when you hear that, what Raj is saying that, because that's, you know, something that's sort of been talked about this week, like the oppression of the Palestinian people needs to be kept distinct from Hamas. But as, as Raja said, um, right. you know, that, that it, for some people... It's kind of hard to separate in some way. So, but when you hear that as a Jewish yeah. person, sure, what goes through your mind? Sure, um, that I like all people um, are a complex mix of identities. Hmm. That my Jewishness leads me in various directions, including towards human rights and justice for all people. Um, I personally have done the work to the point where I don't feel threatened by any of the things that Roger just said. Um, but I recognize that most in my community do. What, what does that work when you say I've done the work? The, the work is to be able to separate my natural trauma, my family's experience in the Holocaust, um, the 
you know, ongoing um, anti-Semitism, particularly from the right, um, these all, you know, certainly affect me and all Jews. But I, I have, I, I have listened and done the work to separate that from if I have certain sort of liberation or freedom by having Israel, is it on the back of someone else? And to put it very personally, what we talk about in our book talks is that I gained and Raja lost. So I focus on resistance as how do we create an environment where there is equality and equal rights for all inhabitants of the land that I don't feel free as a Jew as long as others are oppressed. If you're just joining us on this Sunday morning, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and I'm speaking with Jeff Wilkinson, who you just heard there, and Raja Khoury about their ongoing work to try to bridge divides between their Jewish and Palestinian communities, and I mean communities plural, because within those diasporas are lots of views, and how those efforts are being tested by the events of this this past week. Um, you have both seen during these past number of days so many statements being made by politicians mm. on social media elsewhere, public statements from politicians, union leaders, obviously regular people too. For the, for the elected or, or people who represent um, groups, you know, there's been pressure on them, I think, arguably to make statements as well. But mm. Raja, what do you sort of make of how organizations, people, politicians, union leaders, so on and so forth, have, have been navigating this? Seems it seems to me like people have had to retract or, or made missteps and kind of had to try to get it right or at least better. Well, there appears to have been you know concentrated efforts uh, uh, you know right after the uh, Hamas attack last week to get uh, you know people to take positions one one way uh, you know or the other. And you're right; uh, so some statements were uh, over the top; other statements were very one-sided and uh you know to to palestinians the 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 shock to their system has been that they don't see a difference between palestinians resisting israeli occupation and ukrainians resisting russian occupation and yet the uh the mainstream and the political class have taken different stances on 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 these conflicts, and uh, and that you know exacerbates the feeling of frustration and marginalization by Palestinians who don't see their governments, their institutions, uh, paying attention to to their suffering, to their rights, uh, the same way that they have, for instance, in the Ukrainian case. Hmm. And Jeff, for you, when you see politicians, union leaders, sure. others, student groups, um, make what are arguably, um, people might say, one-sided sort of positions or statements, right. is there any good in any of that? Uh, no, is the answer. <laughs> um, um, and how, how I face it is in two ways, is with compassion and with my vision or, or expectation of reasonableness and truth. So when student unions, for example, blamed Israel 100% for Hamas attacks, that's wrong. That is wrong. The attacks were brutal. They are a, a, a complete, you know, um, excuse me, um, anathema to decency and human rights. And we should not come out and say blanketly that it's just resistance because it, it exceeded resistance. And then when 
and many in my tribe say things that just completely abolish as if there is even a reason for people, excuse me, for Palestinians to be upset, you know, and make comparisons about Gaza as, well, you know, you just have to do what you have to do. And if, if bad things happen, bad things happen. That's, that also is uncomfortable and immoral. Our duty now is to stand for decency, human rights, fairness for all people. We need to resist this natural need when we're traumatized to reduce into our little uh, small cocoons and pretend that the other's concerns are not our concerns because we live together and the other's concerns are our concerns. And so last Friday, um, where there were protests, and I should say before that too, on, on kind of all sides of this, there are politicians and people who say we shouldn't be allowing certain people to do certain kinds of protests. I wonder where both of you stand on that. Raja, where do you think in Canada and, and people's you know right to protest, what we should be doing here? Well, I mean, the, the right to uh, peaceful protest uh, is, is, is exactly what it is. Hmm. Uh, even if people are saying things that, uh, you know, we may not like. Now, we have laws about hate and spreading hate, and, uh, and and those laws, if broken, should be uh, then implemented. Um, the one thing I noticed that it has been happening is that, you know, when when Palestinians go out to support Palestine to support the people of Gaza, uh, they're not they're supporting terrorism, but that tends to be the brush that uh, they're being painted with. Now, you know, some people might be out there supporting what Hamas has done. That's, you know, that's their prerogative. Uh, but, uh, you know, supporting Palestinians and Palestinian rights, uh, that, this is something that has been going on for 75 years and is yet to, um, to be fulfilled. Um, that is not support for terrorism. Jeff, where are you on, on the protest? Sure. Well, um, I'm the same. And I would add, you know, I mean, we are accused of idealism from time to time, and I'll, you know, I'll bear that weight. Um, but just imagine, for example, there was an incident in Montreal where a person um, rolled down their window and started yelling at a Palestinian, saying very horrible things to them who was carrying a Palestinian flag. You know, imagine if she instead rolled down their window and said, how are you? You know, what's happening? Why are you upset? So we we believe that the leadership of our tribes are letting us down. They are exacerbating our wounds. They are rubbing it, you know, in our faces to keep us in, in line, to keep us singing from the same songbook. We need our leaders to, to support moderation, to support listening, I, I'm not sure if the scenario you're just referring to, Jeff, is the same one that I want to ask you about, which was this video of a woman in Montreal screaming out of her car window. Yes. Yeah, at another driver's yes, policy. It is. She she later went on to issue an apology saying she, she can't actually Good. believe what came out of her mouth, that that she oh. was living with shame with what she'd done. Good. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad to hear that. I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. And as you say, maybe a better choice in that moment would have been to enter into dialogue with someone in those heated moments. Right. Hmm. You know, when, you one, know what? one thing I've noticed, uh, Pia, that, uh, oh, sorry, Jeff. 
is you know we issued a statement saying uh, you know violence should be condemned all violence should be condemned and many people responded very positively to that statement but we had people from both sides who said what do you mean are you equating my violence with with theirs uh, and they get into this competition of whose violence is right <laughs> whose violence is wrong and the idea that all violence is wrong uh, is, is is escaping people who are in that mental state of mind of extreme anger and this this connection with humanity happens at that point and i just excuse me if i could just say to my community um we are hurting and it is difficult for me to ask uh, my community to be calmer and more reflective and i have to ask it but i do so reluctantly hmm. because i know that these events were tremendously difficult you know and they they aren't only difficult um excuse me in the present they are difficult because they reflect our past and for many they predict the future and that trauma is real and i want my community to know that i recognize and feel that i feel it with you i just my path you know is to support nonviolent resistance to occupation and to create over time a space where all people can live in the land together and that we stop importing the violence over there over here you both have your work cut out for you, um, but appreciate um, the work you've been doing and the work that will continue, as you both say, now perhaps more than ever. Thank you both for, for joining us. Take good care. Thanks Thank for you having us. Thank Ra you, Pia. Raja Khoury and Jeff Wilkinson are the authors of The Wall Between, What Jews and Palestinians Don't Want to Know About Each Other. I spoke with them earlier this morning. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. If you have a young child in school, you may be keeping an eye on how well they're reading. Various studies have shown the pandemic put many students behind, particularly when it comes to literacy. And schools are trying to find ways to help the kids catch up. But the debate about the best way to teach kids to read has been going on for ages. On one side are advocates who believe phonics, that's sounding out words and letters, um, is the most effective approach. On the other are advocates for whole language where kids use cue and context to figure out what words are. The pendulum has swung back and forth between these two approaches for decades. But as the CBC's Michaela Van Kooten discovered, phonics is once again gaining ground after being phased out by school boards for years. Here's Michaela with our Sunday documentary. We have like a fun little hidden office. Hey. It's Saturday morning at Brittany Thompson's house, just north of Edmonton. So tucked in the back here. We do all of our work back here, but this is about half of our book collection. This is where Bennett, Brittany's nine-year-old daughter, comes to find a book to read. We're looking at a messy collection of books. <laughs> a messy collection of books, definitely. They get pulled off and put back on all the time, right? Right. Yeah. And then we have a taller bookshelf with all of our novels. Mm -hmm. Are you excited to read the Harry Potter ones? Yeah. 
Yeah, we're going to sit down and we're going to cozy up and read those together, aren't we? Yeah. Bennett's in grade four now. She likes reading. But back in grade one, it wasn't so easy for her. That year, she and her mom were both in grade one classes. It was my first year teaching grade one. She was also in grade one, so we went off to grade one together. They were in the same school, but Brittany wasn't Bennett's teacher. Each day, they drive in together. Brittany would hand Bennett her lunch, and they'd split off in the hallway. Brittany to her class, and Bennett to hers. I didn't have any concerns with her. I thought, you know, we know how to get kids reading, or I knew how to get kids reading, and I, I knew her teacher would too. And it was about Christmas that I was like, hmm, like she's, she's really struggling and she's not making the progress that I would expect from a grade one student at that time. And uh, I was starting to get concerned. Then, as we all know, a few months after Christmas, the pandemic hit. It was then, when they were home together, that Brittany really saw it. Just how much Bennett was struggling to read. It was tricky, frustrating, mad, upset, yeah. But Brittany had faith. Bennett was struggling now, but it would eventually click. Teachers in their school division were not using a phonics-based curriculum to teach reading. They were using the other method in the literacy debate, something called whole language, specifically a whole language tool called 3 queuing. Brittany knew it well. She was using the method to teach reading in her own classes, too. So we would look at the first letter and guess at what words could be. We would skip the word, read on, and see if we could figure out what it was. Or we'd use pictures to try and guess what that word would be, but never look at the word and sound it out. What we call the whole language approach, which is the three cueing, etc. It's really started in the 70s. Linda Siegel is a professor emeritus in education, counseling, psychology, and special education at the University of British Columbia. She's put out hundreds of publications, including on the topics of early identification and intervention for reading problems. Well, it actually started with somebody named Frank Smith, who was a Canadian. First, he was a journalist, and then he became an academic. And somebody named Ken Goodman, who was in the U.S., starting in the late 70s and then in the 80s and 90s, this whole language approach has been uh, the predominant one advocated um, for use in teaching reading. This group believed that good readers actually look for other clues or cues. Three cues specifically. Graphic cues, studying the letters in a word to figure out what the word is. Syntactic cues, guessing what kind of word it might be, such as a noun or a verb. And semantic cues, guessing the word based on context. They didn't want kids to get too bogged down with phonics. In this new system, the whole word was taken into account rather than individual sounds. It set the stage for what would become an evolving debate about the best way to teach kids to read. What we aim to do is not teach the child words, letters, sounds, what I call items of knowledge. That's Mari Clay, a developmental psychologist from New Zealand. Clay was an important player in the push for the whole language method. 
which she laid out in this educational video from the 1990s. What we try to do is teach the child how to work on print. That what they have to do is to say, oh, this is what I need to do, or this is what I want to do. How do I work on it? Clay designed an intervention for first grade students struggling to read called Reading Recovery. It is based on the whole language philosophy and relies heavily on the three cueing method. Siegel says the program quickly took off in Canadian classrooms about 20 years ago. In the early 90s, Frank Smith and Ken Goodman published books and did a lot of speaking and advocating for this whole language approach. And reading recovery is very much like whole language, same kind of philosophy, the same kind of books and exercises and all that. And they didn't have data, but that didn't matter. They were salespeople, and they were selling a product. Prospective teachers learn about how to teach reading. And they read textbooks. And these textbooks are written by advocates of the whole language approach. And the writers of these textbooks and the people who use them in their courses, some of them make a lot of money from this. So why would they give it up? The Canadian Institute of Reading Recovery was formed in 1993. It's a nonprofit, but it does charge school districts to have teachers trained in its program. Reading recovery also is very expensive and makes a lot of money. In a statement, the Institute says that while it collects nominal annual fees from school districts to provide its services, it doesn't receive any profits from textbooks or other resources it recommends for teaching students. Since 1984, more than 2.4 million students in the U.S. have taken part in reading recovery programs. In Canada, all provinces use some form of the whole language reading instruction. Yukon, BC, Alberta, Manitoba, Ontario, PEI, and Nova Scotia specifically have been using reading recovery as part of the tools they use to teach literacy. Three cueing is a big part of what they teach. Here's how it was working in Brittany's classroom in St. Albert back in 2019. We have kids basically just memorize lists and lists of words. And rather than sounding out words and looking at the individual letters and how words are built and made up, we're having them just look at the whole word. Um, So you look at the word saw, and instead of knowing that A-W says ah and S says s, we just flash that word in front of them and say, look at the word, that's the word saw, and hope that they're memorizing that instead of breaking it down. Um, the three cueing approach, it's just looking at a word and saying, can you guess what it could be? And kids are just guessing and guessing and guessing. When Brittany first started in the classroom, she was also guessing. She was not trained how to teach kids to read while studying for her bachelor in education. Learning to teach reading was secondary, I would say, to learning about how to be a teacher. That's what I went into the classroom with. It wasn't enough to get me started, and it was really challenging. School administrators gave her the three cueing system to teach reading, and she embraced it. Until 
she realized her daughter was struggling to read. That's when Brittany started having doubts. A colleague suggested she read a book called Equipped for Reading Success, which advocates teaching kids to focus on the letters. Phonics. It was like all the pieces came together for me. And it was like, oh my gosh, like, of course we need to do this. I can't believe I didn't think about how sounds and letters would attach. And why aren't we teaching phonics to the extent that kids actually require? The more I was doing reading and talking with other teachers in my division, we were all just saying like, oh my goodness. Like, it was like the aha moment of, this is what's missing from our program. And she wasn't the only one with big concerns. In 2019, the Ontario Human Rights Commission opened an inquiry into how the public education system had been handling kids with reading disabilities. And pretty soon, that focus would grow to include all students. The Right to Read inquiry, which focused on early reading skills, found that Ontario's public education system has been failing students with reading disabilities, and many others, by not using evidence-based approaches to teach kids to read. Children in other provinces have also been having similar challenges. I have been following the trend of reading difficulties in Alberta. I can tell you that in the last 10 years, the percentage of struggling readers has doubled. Doubled. George Giorgio is a professor at the Faculty of Education at the University of Alberta, where he directs the Reading Research Laboratory. In the past two years, one of his doctoral students, Christy Dunn, has developed a reading intervention to minimize learning losses due to COVID-19. Giorgio says that the program's since been donated to Alberta Education, which has shared it with all of its school divisions. The intervention is rich with phonics, phonemic awareness, vocabulary, fluency, and comprehension. His interest in teaching kids to read is not new. It grew out of his experience teaching second and third graders more than 20 years ago. Many of the kids, despite being provided with good instruction at school and having a lot of cultural opportunities and very engaged parents, they could still not read. He says a high proportion of kids who struggle with reading drop out when they get to high school. There is also a very close association between poor health, lower income, also uh, higher um, anxiety and depression in the population of kids that have reading difficulties. Giorgio is a proponent of the science of reading, which incorporates the principles of phonics. Curriculums that use three cueing like reading recovery, focus on language and understanding context. But when it comes to learning how to read, research shows that sounding out the words remains the best option. Linda Siegel from UBC says, some teachers have known this for years. And when faced with young readers struggling with the three-cueing method, some found themselves sneaking phonics back into their lessons. 
there are some teachers who either figured it out on their own, who've been trained in the more systematic approaches, that is using phonics to teach reading. And so they've been like under the table using it in their classrooms. So if somebody comes around to inspect them, they have to put it away. Brittany knew she needed new tools to help her daughter and her students. So she started to learn more about the science of reading and phonics. With classrooms closed, deep in pandemic lockdowns, Brittany and some of her teaching colleagues started a book club to discuss the most recent reading science. We had over 50 teachers reach out to us in our division alone. And they're like, oh my God, like, I can't believe I've been doing this the same way for so long. Brittany also began working one-on-one with her daughter, Bennett, trying out the new techniques she was learning. I started doing a lot of those phonological awareness activities with her, just trying them on her, and she was moving along so fast. Um, And you could see her taking those strategies when I would say, hey, change out this sound and this word, and she could do it, and she wasn't doing it a week before, I could see that growth coming along. After feeling discouraged for so long, the letters and words began to come into focus for Bennett. I felt a little bit more better. I felt a little bit more um, confident in myself. It's like I filled in those missing gaps. While Brittany and Bennett found success through the science of reading and phonics, three cueing remains a big part of reading curriculums in many parts of Canada, and it still has its supporters. So what are you going to read today for your story? Mm, I'm going to read this one. That Treasure Island. Clementine is in grade one. She's in a classroom at her school in Winnipeg, Manitoba, where she's been working on reading with a specially trained reading recovery teacher. Over 18 weeks, she's been getting 30 minutes of one-on-one instruction every day. I will plant this wheat, said the little redhead who will help me. Not I quacked the duck, and she went away to swim in the pond. Not I barked the dog. I... Now... Wait. Do you know a word that starts like that? Then. Then I will do it myself. We're in my little home office that I set up for working from home during the pandemic. Alison Machuk is one of the first people to train reading recovery teachers in Manitoba in 1994. Alison is mostly retired now, but she worked with the Canadian Institute of Reading Recovery for many years. She brings up one of the primary complaints about phonics, that it's a one-size-fits-all approach to teaching reading. Whereas three cueing methods, like reading recovery, are more adaptable to individual student needs. We think that well-trained teachers who learn how to observe sensitively and design literacy lessons for the individual are giving each child exactly what they need, rather than assuming that one program will solve all of their problems. One of the most controversial parts of the three-queuing system is teaching kids to guess what a word might be by looking at the pictures. But Allison says 
teaching kids to look at the pictures for clues makes sense. The picture will help. The picture is meaning, as is the introduction to the story. It helps them get into the meaning of the story. So if a teacher says, this is a story about a little girl who goes to the zoo and takes some pictures, then they're into the meaning of the story. They're not guessing. They're making very educated attempts. And, she says, reading recovery sessions do include some phonics. Of course, you need to do some work on the letters and the sounds of the letters. And you need to do a little bit of work with some words and show them how words work. But not too long. One of the problems is resisting the temptation to go on and on and on about letters and words, when really they're, they're the littlest parts. She believes Mari Clay's reading recovery approach is just as valid now as it was when she founded it. She said things decades ago that are now just coming out in the research. She talked about neurodiversity. She talked about brain development. She talked about developmental psychology. She talked about what was important in language and linking language to writing and reading. She definitely was ahead of her time. Yeah, well, reading recovery is the biggest failure of the last 30 years. George Giorgio, he doesn't blame Marie Clay because he says the academic body of evidence wasn't established when she was coming up with the program. But he says things are different now. The evidence shows that many kids improve, but the improvement is temporary. A 2019 journal article in Review of Education found that reading recovery leads to short-term success for some students, but that each year, 15 to 30 percent of students don't even complete the program. The study concludes that reading recovery does not tailor instruction to meet the needs of individual students. And there have been some similar findings in Canada where whole language curriculums have fallen short. The Ontario Human Rights Commission released a report last year that found that at least one third of Ontario students are graduating without sufficient literacy skills. The report, called The Right to Read, recommends the province's Ministry of Education remove reading strategies that promote cues or clues and replace them with foundational reading skills, including phonics, for grades 1 to 8. In response, Ontario's education minister says that a new language curriculum focused on basic literacy and phonics will be in place this fall. Can you give my cat a cupcake? Yeah. That's a good one. Back in St. Albert, Alberta, Teacher and mother, Brittany Thompson, has become a huge proponent of the science of reading and a phonics-based approach. There is the science behind how kids read, and it's developmental, and we can't ignore that. She's now the division's literacy consultant, and for two years, she's been working with George Giorgio to share what she's learned. All of our teachers have been trained in the science of reading. All of our teachers continue to get training. Myself and my colleague work with all the teachers, just helping them learn and do all the best things that we can for our our students. So now, the methods that worked for her daughter are available to all kids. 
every class is going to get 10 minutes at least of phonological awareness instruction explicitly taught and systematically instructed um, every day. And that builds into a phonics lesson and all of our teachers teach phonics for about 30 minutes a day. Kids are taught that words are made up of different sounds, but they also read books, work on vocabulary, parts of speech, writing, and more. Kids are getting explicit instruction, but it's meaningful and it's connected to something that they already know. When asked if she's received any pushback from teachers who are reluctant to change the way they are doing things, Brittany says. There's always people that are going to ask questions and I, I do welcome it and we're good and I'm happy to have those conversations. When they see kids are making those connections between letters and sounds and words, they're on board. The, the questions are farther and fewer between every other day. Linda Siegel says she recognizes the appeal of whole language curriculums, like reading recovery. But the data shows they're just not building blocks to literacy. Structured literacy, which includes phonics, is basically a very systematic way of looking at how you teach reading and how reading skills develop. It's a very systematic way of approaching it. And it's based on what we know about how the brain develops and how reading develops in the brain. Now, the balanced literacy or the whole language starts from a different idea. They think that the important thing is to derive meaning from words. And of course, that's important to the structured literacy people also. But if you can't read the words, how are you supposed to get meaning from them? For parents of children struggling to learn to read, Siegel has this advice. Take their struggles seriously, ask their teacher for help, and read to them a lot. And if a child is struggling with reading, it's very obvious to the child and they, they, it hurts their self-esteem. They feel inside that they're stupid because they're trying very hard and they just don't get reading. Find whatever the child is good at and do whatever you can to reinforce that. That will help the self-esteem, which then will help the children learn. This book is called If You Give a Cat a Cupcake by Laura Numeroff. Mm -hmm. These days, reading is coming more easily to nine-year-old Bennett. If you give a cat a cupcake, he'll ask for some sprinkles to go with it. When you give him the sprinkles, he might spill some on the floor. Cleaning up will make him hot, so you'll give him a bathing suit and take him to the beach. That documentary comes from CBC's Audio Doc Unit, produced by Michaela Van Kooten, with help from Kristen Nelson, A.C. Rowe, Julia Poggle, and John Chipman. And with that, we've come to the end of another round of the Sunday Magazine podcast. Our producers are... 
Latifa Abdeen, Sarah Joyce Battersby, Tracy Fuller, Levi Garber, Andrea Huang, Pete Mitten, and Oronde Williams. We had additional help this week from audio technician Emily Kiravazio. Our senior producer is Allison Maisman. Our executive producers are Brian Colton and Donna Dingwall. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you for lending us your ear here on the Sunday Magazine podcast. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.